may be seated. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. I was about to say it again. So, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Wasn't here last Sunday. Uh, Erica had surgery, my daughter, and she's appreciate all the prayers, by the way. It, that's what it took. Uh, she's doing fine. When Lydia and I were about two hours away, and they said, uh, well, we got to do the surgery now. And real quick, um, this is how God works. Robert, her husband, he was just being antsy because he said, hey, we need to, you need to do the surgery right now, like any loving husband would have said. And they just kept prolonging the surgery and kept prolonging the surgery. And come to find out, because her main doctor, Dr. Alba, was at another hospital, they were just going to open her up and take care of the appendix. And so when they finally called Dr. Alba, she, after she fussed them out, she said, what are you guys doing? You can't open her up. This is a transplant uh, person. And so they did the surgery, and God, miraculous hand, he, he was just there. He's not ready to take Erica home. I, I keep saying that. He loves her so much, he, 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 he don't want to continue to be without her. But when we got to her house, we thought she'd be lying in the bed because they took her, took her home. She said, they said uh, she doesn't need to be at the hospital, too many germs. So they took her home, and we thought she'd be lying down. We walked through the door, and she's sitting in the recliner doing fine. And we just said, praise the Lord, and she, she's still doing well. So once again, thank you so much. For your prayers, They're, they are really, their prayer is powerful. Let me read this Psalms real quick. Uh, Psalms 121, a song of ascent. I will lift up my eyes to the hill from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve you. your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I love that Psalms. Uh, as I was watching the news, and you know the conflict that's going on in Israel, and this Jewish young man, he was about 32 years of age. And, you know, I'm amazed about Israel because when, when war comes, when battle time comes, you probably know they call all of their people back. No matter where they're at, they call them back. If you're young enough, if you still want to serve, and that's just amazing to me. That's why they love their country so much. We might should do something by that, but that's another story. But this guy, I think he was about 33 years of age. And he could have been, he was a major sergeant, I think, major something. And he could have worked at a desk and took care of all those things. But he says, no, I want to lead my troops into battle. They trust me. I want to lead them into battle. Well, he died. And they were showing his wife, uh, a wife, and he had six kids. The oldest one just had a baby. The wife had just had a baby. And he never Got to see the baby, but 
it just touches me. James is right. Why do, where does wars and all these conflicts come from? It's because of man wanting his way. And so just continue to pray, not only for Israel, pray for the people of Palestine that they will meet this thing, that it will be a, a, a good solution to this. But uh, we need prayer. This world, I always say, is not going to get any better. Uh, we need Jesus Christ. We need him to come. While we're here, we need to be saved by him. And this is what this passage is about this, this morning, Hebrews chapter 4. If I would have been thinking before I started my first message, I would have named it, Am I Really a Christian? I brought it up, the first message of Hebrews. That's a sobering question, and our entire destiny hangs on that question. And the writer of Hebrews, he begins in chapter 4 by telling us that we ought to be sure really sure. And the analogy that has been drawn out throughout in the third chapter of Hebrews and into the first part of the fourth chapter is the analogy of rest that Moses was trying to give the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt and were walking into the promised land. And we saw that that rest was forfeited because of their unbelief at Kadesh Barnea. Remember, 10 spies said, no, we can't, we can't take the land. Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we believe God. But the children of Israel listened to the 10 spies. They believed the bad report, and they forfeited it, the promised rest. No second chance. They found that out. And the analogy in Hebrews so far has been, don't miss it. We only get to live this life one time. Don't miss it. You might think you're part of the family of God, but if you don't have genuine faith, a faith by the way that walks, well, you won't be walking into the kingdom of God. So we ought to be really sure this morning that our faith is genuine. But then suddenly in Hebrews chapter 4, we encounter these analogies that start to go in several different directions. The word that we've been looking at is rest. The analogy was to the Old Testament promised land. All of a sudden, the writer of Hebrews changes gears. And we start to have a discussion about days of the week, specifically the seventh day of the week. And that ought to raise a few eyebrows if you read your Old Testament, knowing that if the question is, and this is the question this morning, am I acceptable before God? Am I pleasing to him? Or as our title is, am I really a Christian? Does God embrace me? We've got to grapple with that question this morning, which is where our passage goes in Hebrews chapter 4, as we'll see just in a moment. But real quick, 
just listen to Exodus 35. God seems, he seems to be pretty serious about the days of the week. Exodus 35, one through two, it says this, Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and he said to them, these are the things that Yahweh has commanded you to do. For six days, work is to be done. But the seventh day shall be your holy day, a Sabbath, which, by the way, the word means seventh. That's all it means, which is Saturday, not Sunday. He says, is a rest to Yahweh. Whoever does any work is going to get a slap on the wrist. Is going to have to pay a $300 shekel fine. No, Yahweh says, if you do any work on the Sabbath, it's death. So let's think this through. You worked on the wrong day, and you pay by it, pay with your life. Verse 3 goes on to say, do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Now, if you think that's just hyperbolous, I have the proof to you that it's not. He's serious. God's not trying to put the fear of God in anyone. He has given his command, and he stands by what he says. Numbers chapter 15 will clarify it for us. 15 verse 32 says this, while the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. He's working. Now, those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him? Hmm. So the assembly took him outside the camp. Well, verse 35, 36 says, Yahweh says to Moses, the man must die. And the whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death, just as Yahweh commanded Moses. Pretty serious instructions about the seventh day. Our question in Hebrews chapter 4, as you turn there, is do you want to be acceptable to God? I want to be a real Christian where God looks at me and he smiles. He's pleased and he's happy because I'm in the good graces of God. When all of a sudden we start talking about, and we'll see this days Maybe knowing a little about the Old Testament, I ought to be concerned about the days of the week. Before we get there, or as you're turning there, it's good for you to know that not a few modern writers have made their opinions very clear about this. I'll give you a few quotations. One writer says, Sunday worship involves the greatest offense that can be committed against God. Another says Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. You know, you're in trouble if you get that. Another says Sunday worshipers will be condemned. So maybe we should be trying to figure this out. Hebrews chapter 4, we'll only look at 3 through 9. And I hope you guys grabbed a chart. I did my best on that. I hope you can follow with me. That might help you some. So verse 3 says, for we who have believed enter that rest. So far, we've only, we only have 
one reference to that and the application, Old Testament rest is equivalent to New Testament salvation. That's what he said so far. He goes on to say, so I swore in my wrath, God speaking, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, we know that something is going on about that. That was the Old Testament account we're told in chapter 3. And yet here comes a new reference, his work. He says in verse 3, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. That, that should give it, give, you the, give it away a little bit. Remember how the Bible says the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world? That's what he's speaking of. For he has spoken in a certain place. And he'll use that, those two words, certain place, often. And that doesn't mean he doesn't know. I think it's here. I think it's there. That was their way of teaching, wanting us to think back to that scripture and know where he's talking about. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Got a new rest now. Verse 5, and again in this place, in the passage above, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Now, that's a different historical reference right there, point. Since therefore it remains, remains that some must enter, we don't want to get confused, let's keep going, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Verse 7, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David today. Now, we've already seen this quote a couple of times in Hebrews 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. After such a long time as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I hope you're not confused. We're about to explain it. We're going to sort it out. Hebrews chapter 4, and that's why we need this little chart here. On your chart, if you have your glasses on, because I needed my glasses, let's just start reading through the passage again. Verse 3, it says, For we who have believed do enter that rest. The writer of Hebrews says, if we trust in Christ, that was the context of chapter 3 and 4, we enter that rest. We enter real rest, okay? Now, find box F on that chart. It's almost like you're doing your tax, so don't freak out on me. <laughs> find box F. You've got a box reference, first part of verse 3, and it says, trusting and obeying Christ. And if you look all the way down to the timeline at the bottom, it says Hebrews exhortation. Here's what he means. Here's what he's been trying to say throughout chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. He's writing around, I think, 65 AD. As you remember from the beginning of our study of Hebrews, so we're in the first century. Now, what are the rest he's speaking of? We're talking about spiritual rest there. And he's saying, you better get it. That's why the title of the sermon is, Are You Sure You're a Christian? He wants people in the first century to be real Christians. 
And he says, you ought to enter that quote unquote, quote, rest. You ought to make sure that you are right with God. You ought to make sure you're trusting and obeying Christ. We've already got that in the context of our study of Hebrews. That's his focus now. See where it is on the timeline. It's 65 AD. After the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. Keep going, verse 3. Next phrase, he says, just as, I think the King James says, as he, God, has said. Now, it's interesting because we're entering that rest, and he's about to quote something where people don't enter the rest. The just as is not that we entered it, speaking of Moses, they didn't enter it. That's not the point. The point is a comparison of time. We enter it now, but you know what it's like in comparison to the fact that they didn't enter it in Moses' day. And he quotes this, that we've already come in contact within chapter 3, that God declared on oath because of the Kadesh Barnea blunder. They didn't believe the two spies, once again, Joshua and Caleb. God said, they're not going to enter my rest. Now, if you find box C, that's Kadesh Barnea. That's around 1444, give or take a couple of years, B.C. They had come out of Egypt. They were at the front door of the promised land, and they did not trust. So what were they about to enter there? Was it spiritual rest? No. They were about to enter physical rest. And Israel was going to have its own nation then. Oh, you've been wandering around the patriarchal period, and then you found your way to Egypt, and then you're enslaved. Now I'm going to give you a land. That land I promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. Well, you're going to get it, and you're going to get physical rest. That's what he's speaking of. That's the analogy from box F has been analogized to box C. Throughout chapter 3 and in the, ver- in the first three verses of chapter 4. And the point is, how many of y'all, you'll date yourself a little bit, remember the TV show Lost in Space? Danger, danger, warning, warning, Will Robertson. Well, that's what God is trying to tell them right now. We ought to be Christians and enter God's spiritual rest, just like these guys should have entered God's physical rest, but they didn't. They forfeited it because they didn't believe God. Notice, they didn't believe God. That's how they forfeited it. Didn't obey God. Okay, so far, no problem, I hope. Now we've got a whole new thing coming up. Verse 3, the latter part of verse 3, he says, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has spoken in a certain place, there he goes again, of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now we've got a whole new place, a whole new reference, a whole new point of time. He says, you want to talk about rest? I've been talking about spiritual rest and physical rest, the physical rest of Canaan. This is a Jewish author, we have to remember, speaking to a Jewish audience. Let's talk about the ultimate rest, he he tells them, the prototypical rest. Let's go back to box A. 
Because there was a time, and we all know this, in Genesis chapter 2, where God creates the world in six days. And then he says, I'm stopping. I'm just, I'm stopping. And that was the first quote unquote rest. And it became a, the template of work and rest. Six days work, one day's rest. I would say something, but I'm not going to do it. (laughs) This was historically God's rest, quote, unquote. And he didn't rest, we know, because he was tired. He rested to show us a pattern of work and rest, which he goes on to explain, and it's encapsulated in the ceremonial laws and became a special day of worship and a covenant between Israel. We'll get to that. But the point was at the very beginning of creation, creation week, date we don't know. We've now got three boxes filled in. Let's keep going. Verse 5, and again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Where does that take us back? He's saying, now, wait a minute. God rests in, in, in his prototypical rest is in box A. And then later, we, we remember they didn't rest going to box C. We've already filled that in, physical rest for Israel. So he's quoting again a passage that refers to the physical rest that they didn't enter, the Kadesh Barnea crew in 1444 BC. Verse 6 says, since therefore, here it goes, therefore it remains that some must enter it. It's not over with yet. So we're popping all over the time chart. Where are we now? We're back to F again. He says, it's going to happen. That's why I'm preaching. It's going to happen. He wants people to enter his rest, God does. He says, and it remains that some must enter. But now I've got two references in my mind. I've got God's original rest, box A, creation of the world. And I've got the Canaan rest that was offered by Moses, and yet they forfeited it. And that was at Kadesh Barnea, box C. So he's back to the exhortation. Verse 6 says, since therefore it remains that some must enter. Enter what? This rest. It's what we want. It's what we need. It's why he's writing this. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. That takes us back to box C. Remember, I I think Hebrews chapter 4, no, latter part of verse chapter 3, the latter part says, he preached the gospel to them that were going into the promised land. Trust me, obey me, and I'll give you this physical rest, and you'll get into the promised land. They had the good news preached to them. They did not go into Canaan. Why? Because they were disobedient. They didn't believe God. They didn't believe God. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe what he was saying. And and let me say this. Believing, Victor, is doing. I'm a simple guy. But if someone told me a bomb was going to go off in five minutes in this building... Those who believed it would get up and leave. So that's a walk of faith. 
And that's what the writer is trying to get them to understand. Jesus said this, if you love me, you'll obey me. So verse 7, he says, again, now we're going to a different place here. He designates a certain day saying in David, today after such a long time, as it has been said, this was David now, Boxy, speaking of Psalms 95, he spoke through David as it was said before today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now that's in the middle of the timeline. That is box E. David writes 400 years after the Exodus. He writes about the fact that the people in his generation need to hear God's voice so that they can enter his rest. Hold on. Wait a minute. We're talking about spiritual rest here. David had already conquered the kingdom. His son would inherit the broadest borders of all the promised land. As far as they had ever been, David was the ultimate victor. They had the promised land. They had the physical land. But now all of a sudden, he's exhorting people in this Psalms to enter a rest. Hear God's voice, David says. Don't harden your hearts like they did and miss God's rest. We don't want to miss it. But it's not physical rest. He's talking about spiritual rest here, which we know in the Old Testament, you can never have, you can never really have rest without God, without God, unless you're clinging to his payment for your sin. Then you can have peace with God. And that's in the coming Messiah. And for them before the cross, all they could do is know I want peace with God. God's going to have to take away my sin. So it necessitates a coming to Christ, which, had, he, which had, he hadn't yet come with me so far. You know, I always say it like this. Old Testament saints were saved on credit. New Testament saints were saved on the debit card. I kind of like the debit card better myself. I want it now. Verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God could, would not have spoken later about another day. Hold on. Moses is all we've been focusing on in box C. They blew it and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So about 1404 B.C., the baton is passed from Moses to Joshua. And guess what? They enter the physical rest of Israel. And they temporally, that means here on earth, they achieve the rest in Joshua's generation. That puts us in box D. But now all of a sudden, the writer says, now wait a minute. If David is looking past Moses' experience, and he's looking at Joshua and they've already got the land. And David, of course, is a recipient of the fact that they've got the land. He is now the king over the broadest borders of Israel and Canaan they've ever had. They've conquered the city of David, the Jebusites. He took that. They have everything. He says, now why in the world are they talking about a future rest today? But the reference here is the physical rest. Israel, which was achieved on this timeline, 40 years 
after they wandered in the wilderness. I hope you're still tracking with me. Verse 9 says, there remains therefore a rest. And you, I'm disappointed in my new King James because my new King James says rest. And I usually ride with the new King James. So I went to the, uh, to the King James and it said rest. The NIV, the latest copy, it said rest. Wasn't surprised at that, but, you know, it's all right. I know what it means. But I went to the NASB, and it says Sabbath rest. And that's what we're talking about, that Sabbath rest. That's, that, that's the main thing. He says in verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God, which brings up the concept we haven't yet hit. We've been shooting all around the target, but now we finally come to it. Letter B, the quote-unquote Sabbath. And it was the name given to that ceremonial day. It wasn't the seventh day. It was the Sabbath day, and this was the ceremonial rest for Israel, which like all the other ceremonial activities or lack thereof, in this case of Israel, Always look forward. The ceremonial activities always look forward to the coming of Christ. That's what you have to understand. They were right at the front door of the promised land. Just before they get the law, they come down the mountain, they go up to the front door of the promised land, and they blow it. That's box C again. They don't believe. Then that 40 years of wondering, and Joshua brings them in, and that's box B. But they have that rule. They have the ceremony. And I want you to ceremonially rest. That's what God tells them. The explanation is, uh, think Exodus chapter 31 and, and uh, 30, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments are given. All those ceremonial uh, things they had to do that the Jews still added on to. But all of that should have been reminding them of the coming Messiah. He wants them to do it religiously as a ceremony. And just like all the other ceremonies, there's heavy penalties if you don't do them. Read your Old Testament. If you don't do it this way, if you do it another way, you're going to get punished this way or that way. Now the focus is, is not looking back to the ceremony. That's what Hebrews is all about. We're not looking back. We're going forward. That's what Hebrews is about. All of these ceremonies, all of these analogies between the ceremonies is the fulfillment of Christ. That's what the writer is trying to get them to understand. So we're back at that exhortation in, 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 in F box, the Sabbath rest that he's talking about is fulfilled in all of these ceremonies on the Sabbath. To rest on the Sabbath, which basically meant no regular work, of course, and like I said, the Jews made it ridiculously, but that Sabbath was a picture of them entering the promised land. The Sabbath, they should have understood that was about resting in Jesus Christ. God is really big on rest. He doesn't want us to struggle. He doesn't want us to have to strive. He wants us to rest in Jesus Christ. That's all he's saying here. Just rest in me and rely on me. 
because he, that's what these ceremonies are, is about. Now, the ceremony, once again, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why Hebrews is written. And the reason I'm doing it this way, I received a, a mailer. I hate going to the mailbox because I don't like bills, but I go. And I received a mailer, and it was a, a request to come to a, 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 a seven-day Adventist church. And it broke my heart because the Seventh-day Adventists, they are right in the Old Testament when they're talking about the Sabbath day. But the Seventh-day Adventist takes that out of the Old Testament and brings it to the New Testament, and it becomes a burden. And it's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's not a special day. Uh, Colossians tells us that any day you want to worship Christ, pick a day. Just worship him. And so they make that law a burden, and it's not, it's not right. Any day is a good day to worship Christ. Because of their persecution, remember the Jews were being persecuted. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us it's all about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And he's showing the Jews who were raised with these feasts, these feast days, these festivals, they all point to Jesus. And that's the point of Hebrews. That's his theme. It all points back to Jesus Christ and the Sabbath. Like everything else underscores the reality of Jesus Christ because the Sabbath was given in the Old Testament as a way of understanding what we must do to be saved. Let me say that again. The Sabbath was given in the Old Testament to help us understand the way to be saved. The Seventh-day Adventists would agree with that statement, but in the walking it out is where they differ. They think if you have to keep the Sabbath, Sabbath like they did under the Mosaic law, but I'm going to show you that that is not the case here. I'm going through the book of Isaiah. I've never seen it before. And this is, I want to bring this verse to you. Isaiah 30, 15, a beautiful verse. It says, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, here it is, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. This is one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament. God tells us even in the Old Testament how we are saved. First of all, by returning to the Lord and then resting. So does that mean we have to keep the Sabbath to be saved? No. The resting is in God. That he's talking about is resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you know, God showed us in so many ways in the Old Testament that we needed to rest in him to find salvation. Entering into the promised land was a picture of entering into his rest. The Sabbath was a picture of resting in God. I think one of the other great illustrations of the Old Testament, it's not mentioned here, is the illustration of the Passover. We know Passover was the final plague that they went through in Egypt and was visited upon the Egyptian. God delivered the Jews from their slavery. 
but understanding how he delivered them through the Passover is absolutely critical to understanding the significance of what God is trying to show us in the Passover. Because Pharaoh, remember, had, heart, had hardened his heart against God. God finally said, okay, I'm going to do one more plague. He tells the Jews to go in their homes one special night and to remain there, not to leave their house, but they were to slaughter a year-old lamb, bring him in the house for 14 days, get used to him, play with him. The little children play with him. But then after 14 days, slaughter him and then get some hyssop and dip it in the blood and paint that on the doorpost and lintel because the angel of the Lord would go through the region of Egypt and he would bring death to every home where the blood was not applied to every firstborn male, both man and animal. But the Jews were told that when that angel saw the blood of the lamb placed on the door, he would pass over their homes and they would be saved. So again, we see a beautiful picture here of salvation through Jesus Christ because the Jews on the first Passover are doing the exact same thing that you and I are doing. They're sheltering under the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are doing the same thing, sheltering, I hope. You'd better be sheltering, sheltering under the blood of the lamb. But they had to rest. There was nothing they could do to be saved. There's nothing we can do to be saved. All they had to do was to apply the blood. And that's all we have to do. Apply the blood of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb of God, in order to be saved. And then death passes over us. Well, I better retract that. At least the second, the first death passes over us. This is what Revelation 2.11 says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. That's the one you have to be leery of. Hey, if we, if, we, if we stay here on earth long enough, we're going to leave this place. But as Hebrews told us, Mark is telling us, if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about death. But if you leave this place not knowing Jesus Christ, it's not even the dying that's so hard, my Bible tells me. The problem is that second death. That's the one you're going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Passover is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ because we're told so in the word of God. Paul, I like what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 7 through 8. Paul says, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are leaven. And we know a little bit about this Corinthian church. They had a beautiful walk with the Lord, didn't they? But they were believers, and that's all it takes. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread, I like this, of sincerity and truth. My grandmama used to say, boy, be yourself. Be yourself. 
I still tell my wife that sometimes when we're, we get into a little arguments and then we'll go over to my mom's house and she's been giving me a hard time. She's not here, so she's watching, so I can still, I'll get in trouble later. And I'll say, no, be yourself. You're mad at me in the car. Be mad in, at my mama's house. <laughs> I would do her mom the same way, but she's, she's in heaven right now. But that's basically what he's saying. Come on, you're Christians. What he's saying is that like it. We need to hear that sometimes. You say you're a believer. What's up with the attitudes? What's up with, with the not speaking? What's up with the, 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 the love me? I love you. We should hold no kind of animosity against anyone when we look at our Savior and what he has saved us from and what he has did for us. I'm talking to myself. I got the mirror here. I'm talking about me because I know y'all, y'all don't do that. But I'm talking about me now. How can I hold a grudge? How can I have, hold the attitude? It shouldn't be. And that's what this verse is saying. Paul says, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And with that statement, Paul draws a line between the Old Testament ceremonials, the feast, including Passover, to the New Testament, how you are saved. So again, what was God teaching the Israelites during this Passover? He was teaching them to rest. The same thing he was teaching them through the Sabbath rest, the same thing he was teaching them about entering his rest as they came into the promised land. It was about resting, believing him. All God says truly, all Jesus says truly, trust me and believe me. If I am who you say I am, trust me and believe me. No matter how dark the day may look, believe me. Believe me. That's how you get there. And that's what he's saying. You can't believe him by keeping the law. Heaven knows we can't do that. Hebrews 4.3 says, for we who have believed do enter that rest. If that isn't underlined in your Bible, it should be or highlighted. What must I do to be saved? I'm not going to say that. What must I do to be saved? Trust and believe Jesus. Put all my weight on him. Everything I am, I place on Jesus Christ. No matter if it goes like I want to, it, I want it to or not. Remember that Jesus told his disciples, I must need go through Samaria. That's the King James. And they couldn't figure it out because it was a shorter way. He went the long way to get to Samaria. And he met this Samaritan woman at the well. Remember, up in the north, the Assyrians took, took, the, 
took the Israelites over first. And so they've come back into the land. And now in the south, the Jews saying, you can't come down here and worship with us anymore. You can't come down here because we worship Yahweh the right way. You guys are not acceptable to God. And Jesus wanted to straighten that little bit out. So he goes a long way. He goes to Samaria and he meets this woman at the well. And remember, he starts probing on her, trying to enter into her life. And she didn't like that. So what she do? She says, okay, I'll talk some theology to you. You, you, you know a little bit too much about me, so I'll, I'll, I'll talk some theology to you. So she begins to talk theology to him. And she says, hey, you Jews say we shouldn't worship up here in Samaria, but I can't go to Jerusalem to worship. What do you think? And this is what Jesus told her. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. They were worshiping bulls and all these other things up there. What we worship, what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is, is, is here now. When the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. What Jesus is doing, he says, I'm fulfilling everything. And now I'm telling you the ceremonies, the outer court, the inner court, the Gentile court of the women, all of those things, the incense, the holies of holies, the ark of the covenant, he's turning everything over. He is God. He's turning the tables over. Why? Because all of those things point to Jesus Christ. I love what Colossians says, and I'll close with this. Colossians 2, 8 through 11. Listen to what the writer says with this. Because this is all about who it should be about. Jesus Christ. Because when storms begin to, those dark clouds begin to appear in your lives, and you don't know which way is up and how are you going to make it through. Cuddle up with Jesus. He's still God. He's still sitting on the throne. He still knows your name. And he is a way maker. So Colossians says this, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. That, 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 those words should never go together, and not, when they're speaking about Christ, and not according to Christ. For in him, speaking of Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I love that. That's amazing. Because God is saying, kill people that gather wood on the Sabbath. And now Jesus says, none of this matters anymore. He's the fulfillment of the deity bodily. He's got the right to tell us that the rules are changing. He's got the right to replace the old covenant with the new covenant. He can replace, he can supplant the old covenant with the new covenant, full stop. He goes on to say in verse 10, hallelujah, and you are complete in him. Hmm. 
I like that. I might not be the tallest. I might not be the smartest. I'm a pretty good basketball player. I might not, <laughs> I might not be, I, I might not stand in stature with anybody else. But listen to what your father just said. I am complete. You are complete. You might not have everything you want right now. And God still looks at you and says, you are complete in him. That means something to me. I've always battled. I've told you about my brother and my two sisters, graduated college, uh, masters and all this stuff. And I've always been the one trying to run that ladder and catch up until I got saved. And I heard my sweet Savior says, you don't need to be that. You don't need to do that. You don't. Love me. Love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. Dance for an audience of one. Live for an audience of one. I am complete. You are complete in him. That should make us all smile. That should make us all energize, all of us. Who is the head of all principality and power. In him, you were also circumcised with circumcision made without hands. You couldn't fellowship with Jewish people unless you were circumcised. But he says, you are circumcised. He's talking to a bunch of Jews and Gentiles from the Colossian church. They weren't all Jews. Some were, some, some, were, some wasn't. He says, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, the circumcision of Christ, all of a sudden, Jesus is the obstetrician. Well, he is the great high priest. That's all right. God does surgery. He does surgery in the heart. He changed our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Verse 12 says, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and sins. No one could get that off. And the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwritten of requirements that was against us, was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Why? Because he fulfilled it. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the laws. That's why he cried out, partly it is finished. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. And then he says, this is for you. So let no one judge you in food. I'm glad of that because I love my bacon. I love my ham. <laughs> I love to eat it. Or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon. There it is. Or a Sabbath. I like this. Which were a shadow of things to come. But the substance 
And I looked that word up. I kind of know what substance is, but I said, I want a real, true definition of substance. And I like what they gave me. That of which a thing exists. I said, they're talking about Jesus there. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. I'm going to read one more passage, and I'll go to my seat. And worship team can come on up. Because I tell you, Christianity would have been aborted in the cradle of Judaism if the Apostle Paul didn't straighten Peter out in the mistake he made. He was being too cowardly to stand up. And Paul stood up. Christianity would have just melted away or, had to, or at least had to, be, had to wait. Paul says, no, 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 no. Does not matter. And here it is, Galatians 5, 1 through 6. Paul says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You know, those kids in uh, was, was high school, middle school, I was never an extra credit person. If I made the B, I made the B. If I made the C, I made the C. But it, no extra credit for me. But those kids who would always make A's, they, and then they want extra credit, and they do something to get extra credit. Well, don't, this is a good warning. Don't try to do any extra credit when it comes to your salvation. Because if you try to do any extra credit when it comes to your salvation, this verse is going to tell you, you get nothing. I'm going to read it again, then I'm gone. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, you want the extra credit, Christ will profit you nothing. That's what your extra credit gets. Just follow the Lord. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law, you have become estranged from Christ. You, uh, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, take this home with you. These last few words I'm going to say. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But, here it is, Faith working through love. If we could do that, faith and it works through love, we can close the book because that's what counts. That's what Paul just said. That's what counts. Having faith, obeying what the Lord says, doing what the Holy Spirit prompts us to do, and not just doing it grudgingly or I've got to do it, do it in love. And that puts a smile on Jesus' face. And last time I heard, that's what it's about, making our Savior happy. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of needs here. Lord, let's not, let us not say, I'm praying. Let us be busy praying for our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. That's how God worked it out, through prayer. Let us not give up offering those pray prayers to the Lord. 
He's the only one that can change things. Now, he may change it any way he want to, through a doctor, or he can speak the word. That's up to him, but I know prayer changes things. May we love one another. May we be quick to forgive. May we be long-suffering, remembering our Savior, how he is with us. Lord, I pray that you will bring healing to this church. I pray that you would bring physical healing to the people who need it, Lord. And let those who are waiting on this healing to remember that you never sleep nor slumber. You love them. You're over them. And you are the way maker. And I ask this in the mighty name of a loving God, Jesus Christ.